This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The National Park Service is 100 years old this month. It faces some real challenges. Money, maintenance, how to attract more diverse visitors. But in June, President Obama visited Yosemite to say a bigger issue looms. The biggest challenge we're going to face in protecting this place and places like it is climate change. Make no mistake, climate change is no longer just a threat. It's already reality. I was talking to some of the rangers here. Here in Yosemite, meadows are drying up. Bird ranges are shifting farther northward. Alpine mammals like uh, pikas are being forced further upslope to escape higher temperatures. Yosemite's largest glacier, once a mile wide, is now almost gone. As we look ahead in the coming years and decades, rising temperatures could mean no more glaciers at Glacier National Park. No more Joshua trees at Joshua Tree National Park. Rising seas could uh, destroy vital ecosystems in the Everglades. And at some point could even threaten icons like the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island. And here in Colorado, as CPR News will report this month, wildfires pose a threat to the cliff dwellings at Mesa Verde. And in Rocky Mountain National Park, warming lakes may kill off aquatic life. We're going to start this coverage of climate change and the parks with Jonathan Jarvis. He's director of the National Park Service, and he's on the phone with us from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to the program. Thank you, Ryan. It's great to be here. Like the president, you have said climate change is the biggest challenge facing the National Park Service. Say more about why. So I think that climate change is the biggest challenge facing the national parks in its second century because it basically challenges the paradigm upon which we have been managing for the first 100 years. Essentially, we now see anthropogenic change driven by climate change to core resources. Fires are burning longer, hotter, and forests are not coming back in the same way. Anthropogenic, uh, a fancy word for human cause, that there's a human element to this. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think the science is very clear that uh, humans are causing uh, the planet to warm, and that is driving climate change. And you talked about this changing the paradigm by which the national parks are managed. What do you mean by that? So for our first 100 years, the basic concept upon which national parks are managed is that you let nature run its course. You put back all the pieces that perhaps have been eliminated, like wolves back into Yellowstone or you know, certain species of fish that may have been extirpated at some point. And you restore natural processes like fire. You bring fire back into fire-dependent systems. And if you save all the parts, the working assumption is that you have the closest thing to a natural system as possible. Okay. But now that we know that climate change is human-caused and it is affecting that system, that upsets that basic framework upon which parks have been managed. And so what is the new framework? What does it have to be? I guess simply that you can't let nature take its course? Is that the change? Well, it's not that you can't let nature take its course. It's more that we now have to recognize that the park is on a different course And that course is being changed as a result of this human factor. We still want to take a very precautionary approach to that and not get in and do, you know, significant manipulation. But it may mean that now recognizing 
you know, glaciers are disappearing from Glacier National Park, and that means that downstream waters may be warmer and different species of fish begin to come in, is we have to be willing to sort of accept that rather than, you know, resist it, which was sort of where our policies would be now. Hmm. That might strike someone as very passive. Are there, are there ways in which you can be more active or proactive given the certain inevitability of climate change? And, and maybe how would that relate to a place like Rocky Mountain National Park or, or Mesa Verde? Well, it's a great question, Ryan. And I think that is exactly where we're headed. I can't say that we're there yet. But a good example in Rocky Mountain National Park, of course, is that, um, you know, with winters not being as cold as they were, we're seeing uh, beetles in particular be able to live through the winter and as a result uh, have a much greater kill on the forest, which then allows fires to uh, burn more intensely in longer seasons. And that is ultimately going to change the forest structure in Rocky Mountain National Park. So we have to begin to anticipate and maybe even have to be more aggressive about replanting certain tree types in order to retain that forest type than perhaps we were in the past. According to officials at Rocky, temperatures have increased by an average of 3.4 degrees over the last 100 years. They liken it to a fever at the park. Um, I want to say that you... Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you know, the, the national parks are often located in relatively extreme environments, high mountains, deep valleys, alpine meadows, those kinds. Those are the areas that we scientifically are seeing perhaps more dramatic effect and change from climate uh, than other areas. And so the national parks are both, you know, impacted by this, but also maybe some of the most impacted environments that we have uh, in the country. And in that way, national parks are sentinels for climate change, would you say? Absolutely. We sort of view them, you know, a little bit overused metaphor of the canary in the coal mine. Uh Uh, The parks can be exactly that. And that's why good science, long-term environmental monitoring is key to our overall approach to this as well. So it's not all about adaptation. It's also about monitoring and really identifying these changes as they occur. Before becoming the director of the National Park Service, you were in charge of a region in the West, actually. And um, you've had a history of bringing together scientists and wildlife managers to tackle the question of climate change. As director, you brought together scientists, including a couple of Nobel Prize winners, to come up with something called Revisiting Leopold. This is a 26-page document. And I'll just say by way of background that Leopold is starker Leopold, forester, conservationist. What, What were the revelations in what they came up with? So the scientific team uh, who served as advisors to me uh, revisited this concept of how we manage national parks. And now their recommendations are we should be managing in light of constant change, which is somewhat unpredictable. The, The way we're interpreting that, and we are writing policies around this, is that we have to think of multiple futures for national parks, not just one singularity that we are driving towards, that because climate is affecting it, we have to be thinking about things like sea level rise over the next 40 years, and how do we logically begin to move our facilities out of that or adapt those facilities to sea level rise. 
I'd like to talk a bit about wildlife and what it means for them if, for instance, it gets warmer and they head north to escape. Uh, they may go from a place that's a national park to one that isn't. Uh, Chris are not thinking, I'm at a national park or I'm not. Uh, but that's clearly a question for wildlife managers, isn't it? It absolutely is, Ryan. Great question. So we need corridors of connectivity. We need migration corridors that are protected, that allow species to move between islands of protection. So the national parks are one of those sets of islands. There are wilderness areas also on the U.S. Forest Service or the Bureau of Land Management. There are state parks. There are lands that have conservation easements over them. So when you look at the landscape, there are refuges, shall we say, and with a small r, places for wildlife to go, but they've got to get there. They've got to be able to move across a complicated landscape that is bisected by interstates and railroads and pipelines and other developments. So we are working across these landscapes right now to say, if a species is being driven by climate change, how is it going to get from point A to point B? Um, Could you foresee and, linking parks? Absolutely. And it, and we're already doing that. I mean, I think one of the best examples in in the United States is up in the sort of front range of the Rockies, sort of north to Glacier. Already, after 20, 25 years of very collaborative work with ranchers and foresters and the ag community and others, there are uh, ways now that wolves and grizzly bears and other species can move across those landscapes in spite of the fact that many of them are still privately owned and being used for cattle grazing and others. Uh, this is how I think we're going to really help sustain and help wildlife deal with, uh, with climate change. Couldn't that, though, lead to some political friction? Because what you're talking about really is a blending, right, of, of uh, federal lands, state lands, private lands. You've pointed to the cooperation that can be there. But we also know that there's great tension in that regard, isn't there? There's always tension over uh, our public lands, uh, always has been and probably always will be. But I think if you sit down across the table with uh, the variety of interests uh, on the ground, I think the one common theme that I've always found, and I've spent most of my career in the West, uh, is that people care about these places. They care about the resource uh, they care about their lifestyle. And if you can find a way that accommodates all of that, then uh, you really have kind of a sweet spot that can then really serve both communities, economy, and conservation all, all together. But it takes hard work. It takes uh, sitting down across the table and, and finding that common ground. We're speaking with the director of the National Park Service, that's Jonathan Jarvis. And, uh, Director, what does it mean that there are quite a few elected members of Congress who don't believe that climate change, one, is linked to human behavior, or two, that it's necessarily a priority the country must deal with? Well, I think that, um, you know, the, the challenge with climate change is it's, it's pretty hard to get your arms around uh, in terms of understanding how it impacts the individual. You know, it's, 
it's well documented in the scientific uh, literature. Uh, there's consensus amongst the larger scientific community internationally, the IPCC, that climate change is real. Um, so to me, it's not a political issue. It's a reality. The challenge is for the public to better understand it and how it could potentially affect them personally. And that's part of our uh, our goals as well, is that the national parks are places that people really care. Uh, they care about Rocky Mountain National Park or Mesa Verde. And so without pointing fingers at anybody, one of our goals is to educate the public about what climate effects are happening right now on the ground in the places that they care about. I mean, I guess over time, I guess I'm asking you to point the finger a little bit, specifically at at Congress, many members of which not going to get me to go there. (laughs) I wonder why. I wonder why not. Because that's just not my role. Mm -hmm. uh, Do you get frustrated by the fact that there are so many who don't absorb the facts and don't think that climate change is a priority? Well, I think it's, uh, again, it's it's hard for people that uh, don't feel that it's it's affecting their personal lives to get their arms around something uh, as big as climate change. Uh, you know, a one degree or a two degree change, which we, uh, the scientific community says is going to happen. You know, if you're, uh, you know, you're living your life in suburban United States, you're like, so what? I'll just turn up the air conditioning. Not really realizing that those kinds of temperature changes globally can have all kinds of long-term cascading effects. And, uh, you know, as the president pointed out, um, you know, this is, this is something that our children are going to be living with probably through their entire lives. Are there other examples of how Colorado's national parks can help inform this discussion? Well, I think, um, you know, you mentioned Rocky and uh, Rocky's a great example. I think that, Certainly snowpack in all of our Rocky Mountain National Parks, certainly our Sierra Parks, the snowpack is our, is our storage. That's how we store water. Uh, we've, we've relied on it. It's become less reliable, and that has all kinds of downstream impacts for the entire Colorado River Basin, all the way down to Mexico and the Colorado River itself. And that water, which serves both agricultural and municipal and wildlife uh, resources, um, is being changed in before our very eyes. And so all of the Colorado National Parks uh, have direct impacts to that because they're all part of that same basin. And what role does the National Park Service play in, I guess in that case, water management? One is science and, and monitoring those effects uh, and letting the public know directly what we're seeing on the ground at any point. I mean, the Park Service has been relied upon for most of its, its 100 years as a, uh, as a trusted um, interpreter. Uh, we talk about civil rights. We talk about the Civil War. Uh, we talk about the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II and newly added the development of the atomic bomb. We can talk about climate change, and I think the public can learn about that. And so, and we can point directly to what we are seeing on the ground in a place like Rocky Mountain or Great Sand Dunes or Dinosaur or any of the any of the Colorado parks. I think climate change and its impacts lend themselves to a feeling of hopelessness. Are there bright spots in the park system? Well, you know, um, Wallace Stegner said that the uh, the national parks are the geography of hope. 
We're a very optimistic organization. The National Park Service, I think, is the only organization that I know of that's it's its organic act says that these places are to be preserved for the enjoyment of future generations. So um, our mission is to preserve these places for those future generations, preserve them unimpaired. And we now know that that might be a bit of a challenge. But regardless of climate change, Rocky Mountain National Park is still going to be there. It's going to be there and it's going to be gorgeous. And it's going to still have elk and it's still going to have forests, but it's going to change. And I think the hope of that is that that place will still be there to inspire future generations. And we need to bring the public along with us as we go down this path of change and seeing things that might not necessarily look like they did in the past, but still will be extraordinarily inspirational. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Ryan. Jonathan Jarvis directs the National Park Service. This month, CPR News explores climate in Colorado's national parks. It's part of a long-term reporting project focused on how climate in Colorado is changing generally. And we want to hear from you. What have you noticed, perhaps in your own backyard? What do you think we should focus on? Email us, environment at CPR.org. Environment at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The West's major water source is in jeopardy, and not just because of climate change. Government policies are killing the Colorado River, according to Abram Lustgarten of ProPublica. That's the nonprofit news site. His recent reporting inspired a new film from the Discovery Channel. Killing the Colorado premieres tomorrow night. I spoke with Lustgarten last summer as he reported his ProPublica series. Welcome back to the program, Abram. Hi there. Thank you for having me. So 40 million people rely uh, on the Colorado River in the U.S. and then, of course, in Mexico as well. But one of the fundamental problems you address is that in any given year, more water is allocated than there actually is water to allocate. So how is that possible? Yeah, that's exactly right. It goes back to uh, what seems like ancient history. In in 1922, uh, the seven states that share the waters for the Colorado River uh, signed a compact agreement, and that's the fundamental basis for water law in the West. And that compact agreement, uh, when they signed it, they estimated the flow of the Colorado River. And uh, according to the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation, they they estimated that it flowed with about 18 million acre feet. That's the unit of of water that they use. And so they divided up 15 between the seven states, half in the upper basin and half in the lower. Well, it turns out that uh, over a 100-year average since 1906, the rivers only flowed with a little bit less than 15 million acre feet total, uh, about 14.8. And in this last 15 years of drought, it's been even less than that, uh, about 12 and a half million acre feet. So the states are are each uh, trying to maximize their water use and looking to take their full 15 and there's only 12 and a half available. And of course, that doesn't leave much necessarily for nature. Uh, this is the idea of use it or lose it. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the more pressure that's on the river, the more the conversation uh, across all the states uh, is about how to conserve it, how to get a little bit more out of uh, what seems to be less. And uh, use it or lose it is a, is a phrase that uh, refers to uh, a clause in what's 
called the Prior Appropriation Doctrine, a, a, a state law that governs water rights, and each of the seven states has uh, a similar version, though not identical, uh, to this clause. But it basically says that uh, your water rights that you've been granted as a as an early applicant or an early settler to the state of Colorado, for example, uh, could be in jeopardy if you don't use all of that water. You're supposed to put it to beneficial use, and if you can't demonstrate that you're using everything that you've been granted, um, they might come and take your water away. So naturally, the reaction to that is to make sure you use it all. And that dates back to how, how, how far back? Well, it's written into Colorado's state constitution. And in Gunnison, Colorado, for instance, you meet a rancher uh, who says that basically his crop would be fine with less water, but he overwaters because of this lose-it-or-use-it regime. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I heard this talking to a number of ranchers. Uh, it's a very touchy conversation. Um, you won't hear this repeated very frequently. But what uh, what I basically learned is that the alfalfa grasses and forage grasses that they're growing to feed cattle, um, what Bill Ketterhagen, who's, who's one of the, the people that I worked with for my story, what he says is that in a year of drought, uh, which I think it was 2012 that he was thinking of at the time that we talked, um, he couldn't apply the amount of water that he normally would to his grasses, and they held up just fine. They actually grew beautifully. Um, it was it was quite productive. And uh, he started really thinking about whether the plants uh, build up a resiliency and become um, basically stronger uh, as, as a result of having less water applied to them. That's something that I was able to confirm in talking with um, scientists at the Natural Resources Conservation Service, which is a, a branch of the U.S. Department of Agriculture that is closely involved in, in agriculture and water use issues in Colorado and across the West, uh, in part uh, trying to get uh, landowners to use a little bit less water or increase their efficiency or increase the productivity of, of their crops. So this idea that using less water could produce uh, just as much crop as, as a, a farmer or rancher needs really runs contrary to their instinct and, uh, and even legal advice in some cases to use as much water as they can. Right. It would be really easy to demonize a farmer or rancher who overwatered. But the point is, if over, I think, about a decade period, it turns out that uh, on average they're using less water than they're allotted, they stand to lose that water. And that would be a big, big deal to them. Absolutely. The uh, water rights in, in Colorado and across the West are um, immensely valuable. They're a huge component of the value of property. They're an asset, essentially. The right to use that water is an asset that gets passed on from generation to generation. Uh, when you look at land prices, say, across the western slope of Colorado, um, the cheap land is going to be the land that doesn't have water. So the looming question, I suppose, is uh, has, have any western states including Colorado, tried to change this idea of use it or lose it and adopt a, a wiser system? Uh, the short answer is is uh, is no. Um, Midwestern states, Kansas, uh, was able to pass a law that that got rid of this this problem in the law, this um, this disincentive to, for conservation. Uh, Colorado has attempted it numerous times. Uh, last year, it had a bill called SB twenty three, which uh, essentially would have allowed ranchers to take less water out of a river, leave it in the, in the stream uh, without the, uh, the threat of penalty. 
that bill was ultimately defeated. It was uh, it was it was vetoed after being passed by the state legislature, and uh, it really got tangled up in uh, some of the complexities of Colorado water law that make it uh, make this almost an intractable issue. Uh, questions about junior water rights, who should be getting you know basically the leftovers, the scraps of water, and if that if the senior water rights don't uh, don't use that water, then questions arise about whether the the people downstream from them or second in line uh, are still able to use it. Uh, there are also a lot of concerns I heard from ranchers about um, the costs, the, the bureaucratic costs of, of dealing with that sort of system, whether they would have to hire engineers and get engineering analysis and do chemical testing of their water and so forth to be able to prove their case in court. So they were essentially worried that um, that the system couldn't be streamlined enough to function the way you would think that it would. And and so far, that's that's blocked any kind of progress. But it's not that they disagree with the fundamental idea. It seems to get caught up in the details, the practicalities. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, while there's arguments for using a lot of water that I do hear from some of these ranchers, uh, far and away, what I heard repeatedly is if they were allowed to use less, if they were confident that their assets would not be in jeopardy, or if they, say, could bank that water and take it back again, and you know the next year if they need it more, uh, they would be quite happy to uh, to use less. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Abram Lustgarten of ProPublica, the online investigative news source. Uh, he has written a series of articles called "Killing the Colorado: How Century-Old Water Laws Are Promoting Waste Amid Drought." Uh, you do speak to a rancher, though, who says, listen, if if I water or in some other mines over water, that returns. It returns to the aquifer, perhaps below my land, or it flows back into a stream. Is that claim valid? There are points to that claim that are valid. And you'll hear this as a common argument that efficiency gain, uh, the way we think of efficiency, doesn't actually result in more water. Um, the thinking behind that is that uh, water applied to a field, even if it's overwatered uh, uh, per se, will seep into the ground, uh, seep into an aquifer, uh, travel some distance, and uh, and come back out again into the stream uh, that the earth drains this way. And um, water users call those return flows. The state uh, counts on them for a lot of its water accounting. And ranchers like to say that their water is recycled five or six times, and it is recycled. And uh, there is quite a bit of truth to that, that water applied serves a lot of purposes in the ecosystem. But the scientists I talked with said that it's essentially not a one-to-one exchange, and, and it's not quite as simple as it sounds. So that water gets applied, and a certain amount of it evaporates. And a certain amount of it evaporates or seeps into the ground and is lost in transit to the field as well. And the water that makes it to the field, uh, some of it can be absorbed or, you know, sipped up by weeds. Um, there's a lot of, uh, along the irrigation ditches, especially a lot of really water-hogging plants, plants like tamarisk and, and brushes that basically drink up the water that, uh, that the crops aren't getting. And so what actually returns uh, into the river for the next user uh, is some fraction of, of what was applied. Right. Uh, so it's, it's not a, really clear how much. And, it's a shade of gray. You can't say all the water returns and none of it returns by any means. Absolutely. Why don't we look at federal policies, which you say have exacerbated the drought in the West? You point to subsidies, which the government gives to grow crops that perhaps wouldn't naturally grow in some places in the West. Give us an example. 
Well, we focused for this story in uh, Arizona on uh, cotton crops. And, you know, Arizona is perhaps the most stressed, uh, water stressed of, of any of the Colorado River Basin states. Um, it has an enormous, though shrinking, uh, agriculture component and obviously booming cities, Phoenix and Tucson. Uh, its water demands and needs have grown uh, exponentially over the past couple of decades. And so we went and took a look at, uh, you know, what are the crops that are being grown, uh, allowing, you know, uh, for the decision a farmer makes to uh, you know to plant whatever he or she wishes uh, to build whatever business they they think is suitable, uh, it alarmed us uh, that cotton is still uh, a staple crop for the state of Arizona. Uh, while it's decreased substantially over the years, there's still about a hundred thousand acres of cotton planted in Arizona. Um, a quick glance at the cotton uh, commodity, uh, pretty immediately reveals that there's not much of a market for it. The price is low. Um, there's a glut of cotton on the market. No one's really looking to buy it. So there's not this great intense need. And so we were trying to figure out why uh, farmers were still planting cotton, which um, uh, uses more water than almost any other crop that I they see. could choose from. And um, the reason I heard from ranchers in, in Arizona is that the federal farm bill uh, still subsidizes their cotton plantings. Um, there are other crops as well that, that receive federal subsidies, but essentially uh, the government had made cotton such a safe choice that uh, farmers couldn't couldn't go wrong. And aside from alfalfa, which is also grown for feed, um, nothing really uses much more water than cotton. And doesn't a lot of that cotton sit in warehouses? It does. It sits in. Uh, it, it usually will go to a, a, like a distribution cooperative, and it'll sit in warehouses, uh, waiting for the price to rise or waiting for a buyer to show up on the market. Um, and uh, yeah, there's like I said, there's no immediate uh, need or demand for a lot of that cotton that's produced. What do you hope to accomplish with this this series? Well, we're looking at there's five stories in total, and each of them kind of picks an example in uh, you know in in uh, several of the Colorado River Basin states. Uh, you know, I spent a year and a half looking at water issues, and uh, I think like many people, I began. Uh, by being quite impressed by the severity of the crisis from an environmental standpoint. And the, the more I got into uh, the mechanics of how the whole water system worked and the politics of it, what I realized is that this is far less uh, an environmental crisis, even a climate change crisis, as much as it's a, a failure of human management, that, uh, that policy and mismanagement of water have uh, significantly contributed to, uh, to the shortages of water that all of these states, from Colorado to California, are experiencing. And as harsh as that may be, that presents opportunity uh, because policies are a lot easier to change than the trajectory of, of climate trends. Uh, and so if there's new thought uh, about some of these policies uh, that could increase efficiency, increase the water supply, that would be a, a positive outcome. Uh, I should say that we had on a former head of the Bureau of Reclamation, and um, if you can just give me a yes or no in the few seconds we have left, he basically says there is enough water in the West. It's a question of how it's managed. Do you agree with that? That's absolutely right. That's right. exactly what I heard across the board. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Abram Lustgarten's series for ProPublica is called Killing the Colorado. We spoke last summer. Colorado's first statewide water plan has since been finished. It encourages more efficiency and says use it or lose it is often misunderstood by the holders of water rights. The plan does not make specific policy recommendations to address the issues we discussed with Lustgarten. His reporting is the basis of a new Discovery Channel film, which premieres tomorrow night. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. 
You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When celebrated winemaker Warren Vinyarski returned to Colorado recently, you could say he was coming home to see his baby. Vinyarski, who is 87, helped pioneer the wine industry in Colorado, and he recently judged the Governor's Cup, a statewide winemaking competition. The winners will be honored tomorrow. Vinyarski toured Western Slope Vineyards while he was here. He has since returned home to California and joins my colleague Nathan Heffel. Warren, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. I want to start out by saying that uh, your your uh, vineyard in, in California, Stag's Leap Vineyard, uh, whose wines in 1973 produced Cabernet fruit for the wine that would win the 1976 Judgment of Paris Tasting, in which California bested France. So people may know your name uh, out there. Uh, you said in 2014 that Colorado's wine industry is all grown up. Where do you think the state's wine industry is now? Is it kind of middle age? <laughs> well, no, I don't think it goes that quite that fast. <laughs> There are still things to be done, but you're making remarkable progress. The wines I tasted this year, in some categories, were even better than I had tasted before. So you're you're moving quickly, but I don't think you're moving to middle age that quickly. Still things to be done, but you're making absolutely fabulous uh, progress. And you have, you might ask, why Colorado... And, uh, and, and vinifera grapes, grapes that we grow in California and grapes that are grown in the best wine regions of the country. And, and, uh, there are reasons for that, and I think you're fulfilling them. So, so give me, uh, you know, where does that put Colorado in comparison to more established wine industries in the U.S., such as California, where you're at? Well, that, you have a re- unique, that was our idea. In the beginning, you have a unique growing conditions because there are places in Colorado which are not too hospitable for grape growing, but you do have ones that are, and and, and that's where you could grow peaches before uh, would be the first place to start because they're most hospitable to growing these grapes. And, and they're grown under conditions at high elevations. Exposure to the sun is differently. Uh, situated there, and all of those things make give you a market access and a market opportunity, which is distinctive and uh, sets you apart from other places. And some of those grape riders, for example, for Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, this year I tasted were really remarkable, and you're making fantastic progress uh, in in that uh, regard. Uh, I don't know whether you're aware of a tasting that took place in comparing California, France, and and Colorado this year uh-huh. at your Governor's Cup. Yeah, and you did very well. And and that it, is that surprising to you? No, it's not surprising. <laughs> you have very dedicated people working at it, and they're trying to make the best they can under Colorado conditions, which are unique, as I said, and. Uh, there, you you have dedicated growers and you have dedicated winemakers, and they're trying their very best to make the most beautiful wines they can, which are unique to you. 
And and we'll get to those growing conditions in a bit. But first, I, I want to talk about Denver dentist Gerald Ivansee. He invited you to Denver in the late 60s and asked you to make wines for his new label. And of course, there were no Western Slope wine country. There was none of that then. So you had to import grapes from California. What do you remember about that moment when those California grapes arrived here in Colorado? Uh, well, it was a very exciting time. Uh, I had put those grapes into refrigerated semi-trucks and got on a plane thereafter and came out to Colorado. So I was here when the grapes arrived. The whole Ivansee family was engaged in helping to bring those grapes off of the truck and put them into crushers where we fermented uh, the juice and uh, with skins for, for red wines and for white wines. Let's see, what did we do? for We, we made a rosé. So I think uh, they were all, that year they were all uh, red grapes uh, that we brought in and uh, made them into a wine. So uh, for me, it was a very uh, exciting to be part of this vision that uh, Dr. Ivancy had uh, for making unique wines under uh, Colorado conditions. And I read Ivancy, who passed away in January, made his first wine out of a three-car garage at his home near the Denver Country Club. He did. <laughs> he was a hope. He loved wine, and he loved the idea of wine. And he, he and friends made wine that they bought in California, but this was a, uh, you might say, a quantum step for him to try to do it on a commercial basis and to get larger quantities in. But it was part of that original dream that he had that it could be done. But you and Ivan C. Sellers, you wanted to produce a true Colorado wine with Colorado grapes. So you approached farmers on the Western Slope. Why there, specifically? Well, that was the place where peaches were grown, and and it was relatively frost-free, or it had a long enough time in the spring and a long enough time in the fall without frost to be able to ripen fruit in a way that would make for excellent wine. And it's not that the grapes had never been grown on the Western Slope before. There were vineyards back in the 1800s, I believe, but during Prohibition, those were uprooted and replaced with orchards. So reintroducing grapes back to the region wasn't an immediate success, though. You used a different grape than those early vineyards, and your first-year crop failed. Why try to grow a different grape than what was already used back in the 1800s? Well, I don't know, actually, what was grown there, what grape varieties were grown there, Mm. and they were probably... Eastern grapes, I'm, I'm guessing, or hybrids. Uh, and uh, Dr. Ivancy wanted to make vinifera, a, the noble grape varieties that are uh, reached their highest peak in in France and in Germany and in in uh, Bordeaux, in Burgundy, uh, and in uh, uh, places around the globe that are now growing those grapes where uh, they reached their highest perfection. And he thought that was possible under the conditions that were available in the Palisades area. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. I'm speaking with winemaker Warren Vinyarski about Colorado's wine industry. He had a hand in jump-starting it back in the late 1960s. 
According to last year's Colorado Grape Growers Survey, released from Colorado State University's College of Agricultural Studies, it looks like grape production has been up here recently. 2015 yielded a record crop for the state. Do you think that's a result of uh, viticulturalists being more clever, or, or could it be something else like climate change? Uh, I can't speak to that. I think there are places that haven't been uh, used yet in those regions where it's favorable. But I think your market conditions, your your the success of your wines in the market, and and I think that's contributed too because people are stimulated to to do what's working, and and that seems to be working both here on the winemaking part and the viticultural part. You're learning more about your growing conditions, so you're 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 uh, you're finding the ways that are do it that make it favorable. And uh, since you're sharing that knowledge also with each other, and I would highly recommend that you continue to do that on a, on a more extended basis because a, uh, a rising tide lifts all ships, as they say. So we have about a minute left. What makes our, our Colorado viticulture so unique? Well, you have growing conditions where I don't think uh, this was Dr. Ivancy's idea also. You have growing conditions which are are unique to you, uh, unique in the United States on, on any scale that you can grow at these high altitudes with the, the, the uh, sunlight being what it is uh, and its effect on the skin. So of uh, particularly of uh, red grapes but your white grapes have a, a purity and 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 uh, transparency of flavor uh so this may gives you a as i said a unique and distinct marketing position that you can uh, exploit to to uh, uh make stronger your efforts to market the wines Warren, thanks so much for joining us. You're welcome. I'm glad to be here. Winemaker Warren Vinyarski, who helped pioneer this state's wine industry. He returned to judge the Colorado Wine Governor's Cup competition. See the winners at cprnews.org. And while you're there, you can hear our conversation from Tuesday about the local food movement on the Western Slope in particular and one chef's quest to get more local ingredients. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A huge collection of dead animals has a new home. The Denver Museum of Nature and Science moved about a million specimens into a new facility. Earlier this summer, CPR's Sam Brash explained why the future of that collection will include lots of roadkill squirrels. The Denver Museum of Nature and Science has no shortage of animals on display. More than 100 dioramas line the hallways. But you have to descend to see the bulk of the museum's critter collection. So now we're going down the bottom level of this uh, new part of the museum here. That's John Domboski, the museum's zoology curator. He's a bearded biologist who started collecting lizards and frogs as a kid in Louisiana. He leads me into a huge white room. Jaguars and cranes peer down from shelves. 
It's like if the Apple Store had a taxidermy section. Denver voters passed a bond in 2007 to help pay for a $70 million expansion that included the new facility. Construction finished three years ago. Then the museum started to pull its 1.5 million objects into the new space. It's a big deal. It's taken years to move. Now, Demboski is just about done. The standout animals, they already have permanent homes. This is uh, Colorado's last known grizzly bear. We had them, it was thought, till the 1950s. That was the last good records. And then this bear right here uh, popped up in 1979. There's more evidence of Colorado's ecological past. Most of it, like the bear, has been dried and laid flat in drawers. But some has been stuffed. There's bison from the 1870s. There are passenger pigeons, a bird once so common that flocks blacked out the sun. Now, they're extinct. So do you ever worry about this part of the collection growing? I mean, as a biologist, you see a lot of what's going on. On one hand, part of my job here as curator is to document some of this biodiversity, and some of it might be actually showing biodiversity declining. To do that, Domboski has shifted the way the museum collects animals. Decades ago, it would commission hunters to bring the wilds of Brazil or Africa to Colorado for display. That's why there are all the dioramas. Now, the focus is on research about the local environment. People like Leah Pishak drive acquisitions. She's with the Greenwood Wildlife Rehabilitation Center in Longmont. Any animal that is found not rehabable and has to be euthanized, we go ahead and do a collection for the Denver Museum. That means squirrels, coyotes, birds that hit windows, almost all that dies goes to the museum. Dimboski calls these specimens salvage. He took in around 4,000 last year. He says that with the move, his department hasn't been able to keep up, and that's why thousands of animals wait their turn in a walk-in freezer. This is, you know, one or two years of what we call backlog. The freezer is so daunting that he let one squirrel skip the line and go straight to the museum's prep lab. According to the record, it was uh, this squirrel was found not moving in the street, and then maybe it either died or they had to euthanize it. He turns the squirrel over to James Gilman, one of the museum's 150 zoology volunteers. We'll save the skeleton, and then we save internal organs for DNA and we run the bowel for any parasites. Dimboski shows me the next step as Gilman removes the squirrel's skin. We need to clean the skeleton, and the way we do it, and a lot of museums do it, is use flesh-eating beetles, some over here. Yep, flesh-eating beetles. He lifts the lid on a plastic tank full of camel bones. The smell of rot rushes through the room. Oh my god. And these beetles love to eat the meat off these bones. And once they're finished, the bones will be labeled, boxed, and linked to online databases that Dimboski is giddy to show off. In his office, he pulls the record for another squirrel. And I can click it, and there it is, Overland Pond Park between South Platte River and Overland Pond. So a lot of these go right down to you know somebody's backyard. That's why data is so important for Dimboski. He'll take almost any animal so long as he knows when and where it died. That way, researchers can find patterns. So you can start seeing how things are changing and moving around. Are species expanding? Are they contracting? And then the question is why? You know, is it climate change issues? Is it an invasive species? Those questions are what drive him, and why he says the new facility matters. He'll keep taking in dead critters so that in the future... 
researchers understand the changes that are on their way to Rocky Mountain ecosystems. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. Finally today, one of the most unusual features in the Alaska wilderness is man-made. Stone markers dot the Arctic tundra, many of them stacked to look like people. The natives who put them there over centuries call them Inuksuit. Pulitzer Prize-winning composer John Luther Adams lived in Alaska for decades and was inspired by these markers. In 2009, he wrote a piece called Inuksuit. It'll be performed outdoors. Dozens of percussionists spread out, a lot like the stone markers themselves. The musicians make a huge rhythmic racket that lasts an hour or more, and the audience can walk amongst them. Adam says the untraditional piece has become one of his most popular compositions. Inuksuit is set for two Colorado performances this month, at the Bravo Vale Music Festival on Saturday and at the Aspen Music Festival Sunday. They will feature 66 percussionists. Adam says the quieter moments in Inuksuit call for the musicians to imitate the sounds of birds that live where the piece is performed. And so these Colorado performances will be true originals. It's Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner.